0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Police, a Field Guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. It doesn't take first hand experience to learn the meaning of pain compliance or rough ride. Police, a Field Guide is an illustrated handbook to the methods, mythologies, and history that animate today's police. It is a survival manual for encounters with cops and police logic, whether it arrives in the shape of officer-friendly, tasers, curfews, noncompliance, or reformist discourses about so-called bad apples. In a series of short chapters, each focusing on a single term, such as the beat, Order, Badge, Throwdown Weapon, and much more, authors David Correa and Tyler Wall present a guide that reinvents and demystifies the language of policing in order to better prepare activists and anyone with an open mind on one of the key issues of our time, police brutality. In doing so, they begin to chart a future free of this violence and of police. Police, a field guide. By David Correa and Tyler Wall. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to the Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The Rule of Law. It's something that the hashtag resistance has construed to be a cornerstone of opposition to Trump. And it is certainly alarming to live under a president who seems to believe that he can operate under a permanent and near total state of exception. But it's also the rule of law, as we've known it, that has blessed the wide open floodgates of corporate money into American politics, looked the other way in the face of unchecked national security state abuses, christened separate and unequal public schools, and, of course, rubber-stamped the rise of mass incarceration. The law has no transcendent moral basis. Rather, it is shaped by and embedded in political economy. My guest today is Amy Kapchinski, a professor of law at Yale Law School and a co-convener of LPEblog.org. LPE, of course, stands for Law and Political Economy. Kapchinsky writes and teaches about law and political economy, often as it relates to health and pharmaceuticals. Before we get rolling, it's May 15th, and we are roughly 15 people away from closing out our spring fundraising drive at patreon.com slash the dig. We put a ton of work into this show and then give it to you without charge. And so we depend on your voluntary support not only to make this happen right now, but to ensure that it keeps happening over the long haul. In other words, we need your support to ensure that The Dig is financially sustainable for the coming years. So, if you appreciate what we're doing here, including recent interviews with Dorothy Roberts, Patrick Blanchfield, Kienga Yamada-Taylor, and Bernie Sanders, contribute what you can at patreon.com slash thedig. For $5 a month, I'll send you my new weekly newsletter. For bigger donations, I have tons of great left-wing books to send you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Without further delay, here's Amy Kapczynski, and I should mention that the audio quality changes near the beginning of the interview because we switched from a landline to Skype for boring technical reasons. Amy Kapczynski, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: I want to start out with a very basic question, which is just, what is law and political economy and where does it come from? In in the opening post of your blog, you and David Singh Graywall and Jedediah Purdy call it a coalescing movement.
1: We think of it as a new wave of legal scholarship that, in fact, in part through the blog, we are trying to um, articulate. And um, we think of it as something that provisionally has a kind of common set of premises and a common set of commitments. So as we say in that framing post for the blog, um, is that there isn't an economic realm that can be separated from politics, right, and vice versa. So the structure of our economic order deeply shapes our political life and our ability to be sort of citizens together. Um, that, of course, may seem fairly obvious, particularly to listeners of The Dig. Um, but it's, uh, it's of course, sort of flies in the face of how lots of policymakers and legal scholars have tended to talk, um, particularly in the wake of sort of our neoliberal era, right, where the market was something that was supposed to be a kind of technical realm, it sort of follows its own rules that can't be disrupted by politics, shouldn't be disrupted by politics, government shouldn't interfere, right? Um, and um, and there's lots of legal discourse um, that um, about in fact our sort of public political order, even our constitution, that tends to ignore or not have a way to talk about the role of of distribution of economic distribution of status distribution um, in that kind of public order right so so part of it is this sort of shared sense that that we have to think about the politics and the economy as interconnected in this way. And I would also say there's a shared commitment um, among this group of mostly young scholars, right, to um, thinking about the need for and articulating the need for a more egalitarian and democratic society um, and contesting other ways of characterizing what the values of our legal system ought to be, like efficiency. Um and um and also challenging and this of course doesn't necessarily make us different than some of our predecessors, but um but is really important to the group of people working on um in this tradition and on the blog, which is sort of challenging visions of freedom or rights that ignore or um downplay um, social and economic um, power imbalances. And so sort of resisting the idea of more formal distinctions between people and trying to um, attend to the real substantive um, distinctions between people and how in various legal um, Say doctrines and cases and forms of law. Um, questions of distribution are sort of downplayed. Um, uh, vision of um, how what equality looks like gets more formal, and and, and kind of substantive questions of inequality are are um, sort of disappeared.
0: It seems like one thing that you're saying is it's a matter of understanding the law in order to change it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that one thing that also characterizes the set of people that that we now see as all interconnected in this way is that um, people really um, are invested in trying to create a more um, common platform within law, but also beyond it for thinking about how to create a sort of more just legal system, um, better distribution of resources and opportunities for people. So there's a kind of a reformist, um, hopefully, maybe what we might call a non-reformist, reformist reformist strand of this work. yeah. Absolutely.
0: Um, you mentioned uh, the pre- prevailing form, legal formalism, and I want to ask you about how law and political economy relates to differs from other dominant forms of legal thinking. And one that's quite influential, of course, is law and economics. And at your suggestion, I read a little of Richard Posner. Is it Posner or Posner? It's something that I always see and don't. Posner. uh, Classic work on law and economics. And I found it at turns impenetrable and baffling. And I found it baffling. I found it impenetrable because it was just very, very dense. um, But I found it baffling in the sense that the sort of philosophical questions that he seemed to be trying to answer to figure out how the law should work. Really seems so divorced from the actual reality of the legal system, and more generally of actual reality, you know, as a whole. Um, and I, I guess maybe another way to put that would be it's, it's formalism. Um, can you tell me a little bit about about law and economics and its influence, and how the critique put forth by law and political economy relates to that?
1: So one of the sort of background. Um, movements that that law and political economy is trying to respond to is, in fact, law and economics. So law and economics is, I would say, a kind of a a school of its own um, that that really consolidated in the 80s, but that has really um, deeply influenced how um, legal discourse works very much in the academy, but not only in the academy. Sir Richard Posner, who you mentioned, is a very well-known federal judge Law and economics um, has to be seen as both a kind of um, set of intellectual uh, claims, but also as a a movement not in a very grassrootsy sense, but, you know, there's a history of, of an attempt to, to, through judicial trainings and um, foundation support, for example, to elevate this kind of approach, um, not just in intellectual circles, but also in judicial reasoning and in policymaking terms, right? So, so generally speaking, and Posner's thought of as one of the progenitors of law and economics, law and economics um, takes the position that what law ought to do is maximize efficiency, that's one really key premise um, another really key premise is that law ought to um, uh, maximize efficiency before you think about distribution right and so that that those two set of moves maybe are a good way of describing um, some of the stakes of um, and the conceptual boxes that law and economics sort of puts us into and that makes it hard to sort of um, uh, maybe understand whereas you're saying that creates the sense of dissonance when you when you read the work of somebody like richard Posner so um so the the sort of notion that law ought to serve efficiency um one of the things that's interesting about it in law and economics is it's rarely if ever really. Um, described as a, a commitment that we, at, we the people, have asserted, right, that we really want law to be efficient. It's more described, and this goes back to our earlier conversation about, um, you know, sort of neutrality and the neutrality of the market, right, that efficiency is a neutral value. And so we all, of course, we want to be efficient, and it's a kind of a technocratic discourse, right? Um, and and the way efficiency is defined, and this is this is um, in part through Posner's work, the work that you were mentioning about um, what he calls wealth maximization, right? That what we ought to be doing as a society is is to maximize our wealth, maximize um, consumer and sur- sort of producer surplus, right? And that's obviously borrowing from economics, and that's where law and economics comes from. And borrows ideas from economics about. Um, How to analyze what should be efficient and then try to apply them to law. So, you know, Posner would make claims about how um, you ought to organize. The law of personal liability or tort, uh, in order to get the most efficient real, results, to sort of maximize wealth, as he describes it, um, and um, and you know, law and economic scholars actually have tried to analyze lots of things that way: um, the family, the state, all kinds of things. That, um, but typically, where it really took hold was in what we would call private law discourse, right? In the fields like torts, like contracts that order the economy and are understood to be ordering the economy. So. Um, law and economics, um, yeah, puts, puts efficiency at, at the center and um, says that, in fact, distribution should be addressed uh, somewhere else, right? So what we ought to be doing is organize all of these kind of core legal categories about property law or contract law in ways that um, generate the most wealth. And then, you know, somebody else, maybe um, later through some kind of tax and transfer scheme, should deal with any distributional questions.
0: It seems resonant to me, um, maybe not related historically, but at least philosophically resonant with other conservative legal schools like textualism and originalism, in that they all seem to offer these purportedly neutral principles that offer nice, easy solutions to complex questions.
1: Right. Um, you know, actually, I used to teach a class here at Yale um, with Riva Siegel and, and David Graywall um, called The politics of method. And what we taught in that class was both originalism and law and economics in their claims to be neutral methods. Um, so what's at stake in claiming to be a neutral method? Why, in fact, if you understand them deeply, you um, have to come to the realization that there's nothing neutral about them. Uh, nonetheless, how powerful politically that claim to neutrality has been. And so, of course, one of the things that we're doing in the sort of law and political economy scholarship is is a, a sort of unmasking move, right, to say, actually, um, there's nothing neutral about efficiency. And so So, for example, the idea that things should be efficient, should maximize consumer and producer surplus, actually embeds within it a – an agenda that's distributive, right? And in fact, that's redistributive, or some people might call it pre-distributive, right? And I can sort of give you examples of that if you think it'd be interesting for folks. Yeah, to, please. Um, to sort of... So one way that I like to do this um, when I describe to people sort of the stakes of efficiency analysis is, you know, so efficiency analysis says you ought to take um, and sort of maximize people's willingness to pay. This will be familiar to you if you've studied economics at all, right? So, So let's say we have a loaf of bread Right, the way efficiency analysis works, it says whoever's willing to pay the most for it ought to get it. And that's the efficient result, and that's the moral result. right? So if you've got a wealthy person who's a bit hungry and's got ten bucks and is willing to pay ten bucks for it, um it should go to that person, not to the say you know, impoverished person who really needs it to survive but only has a dollar in her pocket, right? So, that, um, that idea that, that, that things should move towards people who have the highest willingness to pay for them is baked into efficiency analysis the way Posner means it. Um, and you can see that it's a pretty immoral idea, right? That it isn't something in general. And there's famous critiques of, of Posner in the legal um, world that sort of say, like, wealth itself isn't a value, isn't a moral value, because, you know, how can you say the world's better off um, now, maybe later on, um that money will be redistributed in some sense. That's the part about sort of let's do efficiency first and distribution later, but in some sense, you can say like that that if that doesn't happen, if there's no redistribution, then this is a deeply immoral project because all it's doing is is moving resources um towards people who can pay more for them in a world in which wealth is is quite um unequally and unfairly distributed right so um, you know it, what? What's interesting about this kind of analysis is it claims to have a kind of a, a moral basis, and Posner very much tries to make the claim that efficiency is a sort of morally credible value, one that we all ought to share. Um, but in fact, I don't think that's 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 the case. And um, and one of the things that 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 I think is also important to understand is that. Um, this kind of idea that we should maximize wealth is basically what happens in law and economics as well as a lot of economics itself, right? even though when you kind of um, push people into a corner and say, but isn't this immoral? They'll say, well, we're not actually talking about maximizing wealth. When we say efficiency, we're talking about maximizing welfare, or we're talking about maximizing preferences. But of course, that's a really different thing, because if you're talking about that same loaf of bread, and you're maximizing, say, preference satisfaction or happiness, you're going to give it to the poor guy, right? So sometimes law and economics retreats into this sort of notion of welfare maximization. Mostly, it operates under this criteria wealth maximization. And so it's those kinds of slippages that people who are interested in law and political economy are interested in bringing to the surface. And um, and in fact, also the political stakes of the very definition of this sort of meta criteria of efficiency that, that sort of sounds like, well, who wants to do something inefficient? Well, if it, what efficiency actually means is moving resources from people who have fewer things to people who have more of them in a kind of systematic way, um, then that, uh, that doesn't sound very moral at all.
0: And if I remember correctly, Posner actually explicitly says that he's not talking about maximizing welfare in some more general sense. He's talking about wealth.
1: Exactly. So Posner, in 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 this very early important piece, says really what we ought to care about is wealth, and uh, tries to really defend that. He later goes on to retreat a bit, and so uh, part of what's happened over the had a period of law and economics after that, is this this other move where people say, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, we all kind of have to agree. Wealth doesn't seem moral when you put it that way, when you really drill down and say, um, why should we give it to the guy um, you know, who's got $10 more? Um, You know, that doesn't seem moral. So they say, well, really, you know, we're supposed to be doing welfare. But then you say, well, how are you going to measure welfare? How are you going to measure preferences? And then typically what happens is, you know, we've got the metric of money. We've got markets. We've got revealed preference. And so you end up back in the wealth maximization category, even when people say that that's not what they're doing.
0: One of the key things that law and political economy does is break down this conventional divide between criminal and civil law and public and private law. For listeners who who aren't aware, explain what those two types of law are and how they got treated as separate and what the consequences of that artificial division are.
1: So those are all really classical distinctions in legal thought, right? Um, And- It's contested, exactly what those terms mean, but a sort of simple way to think about it would be criminal law involves um, the public prosecution of people that can end up in um, sanctions, the seizing of the body, right, criminal um, consequences, so prison. Um, And civil law is about the enforcement of voluntary agreements between people or um, circumstances where the consequences are Um, more about, let's say, fines or damages, right? So
0: criminal law is where life and liberty are at stake.
1: Yes. I mean, typically that's how it's thought. Now, it's obviously a little more complicated than that, and that's part of the way that one might start to contest these distinctions. Um, But yes, part of what... Um, some of us in the law and political economy world are doing is is trying to trouble that distinction because, of course, it's a very very deep one, and it, it relates to this other one about the public and the private, right? And so, um, in in one really nice piece on the blog, Noah Zatz, who's a professor at UCLA, describes um, this um, famous um, case called Bailey, which is an old case that is about. Uh, involuntary servitude, or the 13th Amendment, which prohibits slavery. It says, well, what does that mean? And that case is about, in some sense, the division between between civil law and criminal law, right? So that's a case in which um, you have an um, African-American in the early 1900s, who lives in a world of debt peonage, basically. So he uh, engages in a contract for labor, he borrows, um, uh, and um, it has to pay back a a, a debt. And so the debt um, is um, that he can't get out from under the debt, basically, and he leaves his job. But the consequence of leaving his job is that he is criminally prosecuted. And so the court faces this question of sort of, if your employer can call up the sheriff and throw you in jail for not working for them, is that really so different than slavery? And the court ends up making the right decision says, no, that's not really so different from slavery. Um, But then part of what they face is, of course, the question of why not? I mean, this guy made a deal and it looks kind of like a contract where he just said, like, I'm going to pay you this debt. And so you didn't pay your debt. And so, you know, that's, there's consequences for that. And he should have just paid his debt. And the, the court ends up saying, well, look, um you know you can't actually enforce a labor contract through the criminal law that is you know that's a, a violation of liberty
0: right?
1: um those have to be enforced in some other way um and of course what noah shows and what you can probably already sort of see from this is that that form of the d- line drawing is in a way just to hide the fact that behind all um, legal action, whether civil or criminal, there's the threat of state coercion, right? So if you, um, you know, damages are assigned in a civil case and you don't pay them, somebody can come and seize your property. Um, you know, or, or thought of more expansively, of course, free labor contracts, which aren't enforced by the criminal law are in fact, um, you know, um, their, their terms are backed up by all kinds of other coercive measures, right? So the property law that says you can't go and take the food that you need to eat um, or the law that says that you can't protect yourself from eviction if you don't pay your rent. Right? So so that's that's an example of a sort of... Um, attempt to sort of take these these canonical legal categories like the civil and the criminal law and show that the attempt to sort of hold them apart and create a free market that is not, um, that's the, the space of voluntary agreement is, of course, itself backed up by lots of um, decisions that are made in law that you could easily contest the voluntariness of, Right. So that's the, that's the sort of a bit on the criminal and civil distinction. Um, the public and private law distinction, you know, it's it's another one of these old standing distinctions in law where par- private law is sort of paradigmatically something like contract or property law that's described as affecting a, a private realm of individual choice where people basically privately order, um, they're serving their private interests, um, and maybe even in some earlier iterations, interests that predate the state, right? Right. Um, and are part of the common law, or law that developed from courts as they elaborated people's duties to one another. Um, And so that's actually how contract, tort, and property law worked in the United States and, and the United Kingdom a long time ago, right? Judges elaborating the common law, right? So that's a kind of often described as the private law realm, and then public law is something more like paradigmatically constitutional law, where the institutions and the aims are public and governmental, right? So, of course, this distinction doesn't really make any sense. Um, and it's been be debunked many, many times in legal scholarship, and yet its sort of it still persists, even though we don't always admit it. You know, if you think about um, the story I was telling you about law and economics, that that law and economics is thought to govern in the realm of the economy, sort of this private law area, right, where this neutral value efficiency is supposed to order, you know, how we treat one another. And then it hasn't actually had nearly as much um, purchase in this, quote unquote, public law side of things like constitutional law, right? So, you know, that distinction, you know, why doesn't that distinction make sense? Well, so obviously, um, you know, markets are created by legal institutions. So property law, contract law, tort law, um, uh, corporate law, uh, labor law, financial regulation, all of these things are essential to the very existence of a market. Um, And the... um, you know, there's a there's a kind of public interest of course in how the market is ordered and you, you know although once it might have been possible to draw distinctions between judges that cast them as these kind of pre-political or pre-state actors it doesn't really make any sense right judges are political actors and, and state actors just as legislators are so so that sort of conventional divide between um, public and private law is also something that that people in this uh, context are, are trying to to resist I guess Maybe I'll say one more thing about that, which is that I think one of the really um, important um, reasons that there's this new wave of scholarship is the um, the kind of state of these two kinds of public and private law domains, and how, um, for example, the public law side, something like constitutional law, um, has obscured questions of economic um, distribution um, on the one hand, so that um, you know if you it, um, constitutional law has, for many decades, really since the 70s, um, uh, for example, um, uh, been governed by the idea that, um, f- for example, um, uh, a law that discriminates on the basis of poverty um, has to be treated differently than a law that discriminates on the basis of race. So, in terms uh, of
0: protected classes.
1: Exactly. So that poverty or class is not a protected legal class, but race is a protected legal class, right? That's long-standing constitutional law. Um, actually, was close. It was these cases were close when they were decided in the 70s and the 80s, right? So, and 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 no, so another iteration of this is you have the right to an abortion, um, but you don't have the right for the state to pay for even a medically necessary abortion, right? So, the constitutional law has since the 70s um, really um, uh, disavowed. The um, the structural importance of our economic order for constitutional rights, um, in the sense
0: the San Antonio case, is, if I have it right, would be one of those around school school funding.
1: Exactly, where San Antonio faces the question of whether or not there's a kind of constitutionally cognizable form of discrimination um, when a school funding um, turns on um, you know basically class and and um, and income vis-a-vis and-
0: local property taxes.
1: exactly vis-a-vis local taxes and the court is unwilling to say that there's anything constitutionally suspect in that question of wealth classification and 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 sort of disc- what you might say is discrimination because you're poor um, and um, and so but it's not only that the court sort of says look we're not gonna we're not gonna assert ourselves and disrupt the judgments of legislatures when they do things that you could say are discriminatory against the poor like you know design schools around property taxes um, but also there's a way in which and, and this is a, uh, another kind of um, outworking of kind um, neoliberal thought and constitutional law, where when legislatures do try to do things that reflect the fact that the economic order um, and and the sort of organizing of social status and, and interconnection between social and economic status matters, and they want to they want to create a sort of level playing field for people, whether that's in in finance uh, financing of elections, right, campaign finance reform, um, or in affirmative action uh, in the educational context. The, the Supreme Court in recent decades, and particularly the con- very contemporary Supreme Court, has taken a very aggressive view against those kinds of decisions on the part of legislatures, where legislatures say we want to have we have a more structural view of let's say um, the disadvantage that comes along with racial hierarchy in our society, and we want to integrate our schools uh, in part using the category of race to integrate schools, or where you know the legislature says we worry about the influence of money in our elections, and so we want to limit. The degree to which money can influence elections, the court has said, well, those actually are forms of of discrimination themselves. Right. So this is a a very deep way that a kind of neoliberal picture has worked itself into constitutional law. On the one hand, to sort of obscure um, questions of, um, you know, socioeconomic inequality and sort of the the role that they play in the meaning of rights in the kind of the the plausibility of saying you even have a right to begin with, right?
0: It's this feature of both neoliberalism and libertarianism that can only see the exercise of power and coercion when it comes from the state. Private relationships of power are just invisible because they're naturalized in these accounts.
1: Right, and and that's very much um, that's very much true in these kinds of cases that I'm describing. And so, of course, part of what we are interested in is how does law and legal discourse work to make some things look natural and not the subject of you know prior political decisions, and to make some things look quote unquote political.
0: Another case I wanted to to talk to you uh, about that I think suffers from the same sort of logic as. Citizens United and, and the other ones you just mentioned um, on affirmative action, was discussed in a blog post by K. Sabil Rahman, and he wrote about the 2007 school resegregation case, parents involved the Seattle School District, and it's such a remarkable decision in which the court struck down local school desegregation programs in Louisville and in Seattle because to achieve desegregation, these districts had to take explicit account of race. And Chief Justice John Roberts put it in this majority opinion that makes my brain collapse into a pile of, of mush every time I, I read or hear it. He wrote, the way to stop discriminating, dis- the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of of race. And it's this type of thinking about racism embraced by the Roberts court that reflects this this broader philosophy that we've been discussing whereby the economy and any systemic patterns of inequality that result from it are these are these natural phenomena that that cannot be interfered with by the state
1: and um, that decision was extraordinarily controversial and um, subject to a lot, lots of uh, heated dissent from the, the more progressive part of the Supreme Court, sort of saying this is undermining the court's legacy in Brown versus Board of Education, which in fact assumed that state, the state had the obligation to desegregate institutions. And now, when institutions um, try to desegregate, um, the court is much more likely to interfere with that. Um, than it ever would have been at the time of uh, of these earlier desegregation cases, of course. and and that 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 whole transformation requires all of these intellectual gymnastics, right? to sort of say that um, that that what matters is um, what we would call a formal uh, use of race. So what matters is, is the legislature seeing race? Are they using race? right? which makes um makes it equally problematic for the state to see, um, and uh, to, to say use race um, to disadvantage black applicants as it does to use race to advantage, um, you know, black applicants, or to take account of the the, the relationship between race and disadvantage, c- contemporarily or historically, right? Um, so, so any use of race is then suspect. This is also talked about as the kind of color blindness motif in the court's analysis, right? And all of that is a is a really um, as a sort of intellectual apparatus to disavow the structural and historical features of, you know, white supremacy and, and racism, and then to also practically stand in the way of attempts to um, to take race into account with respect to to school integration.
0: Another issue that comes to mind, thinking through what what this false distinction between civil and criminal and public and private law obscures, is thinking about. That about mass incarceration. We have a criminal law system, obviously, that incarcerates millions of Americans, disproportionately poor people of color. But if the political economic system that, that renders huge swaths of people poor in the first place and thus makes them vulnerable to mass incarceration, uh, to understand that, we have to look to, to civil law, which is the, the battleground within which struggles between workers and poor people on the one hand and against rich and business people on the other hand take place, whether we're talking about Citizens United or the upcoming Janus decision. Um, and then the, the converse is also true in terms of thinking about the way that that mass incarceration in the carceral state helps legitimate and reproduce certain political economic relations of power as well. You
1: know, those are really, really Deep points, and there's all kinds of of kind of um, forms of legal habits of thought, right? Like this criminal civil distinction that that facilitate them, and that facilitate sort of somehow holding apart um, the question of mass incarceration from the question of the economy, right? Mass incarceration question of say maybe if anything you know discrimination or public law something like that, and and the sort of um, questions of of the economy. These are all these efficiency issues where race never appears formally, right? Um, and of course, they have implications, deep implications for one another. right? So, um, you know, c- criminal law helps to force people into work, whether that's because, you know, um, parole or um, probation requires you to get a job. And if you don't, you can end up back in jail um, or because the court is you know, ordering you to pay child support and you can be incarcerated if you don't, right? So there's all kinds of interconnections between the criminal law and um, the, the sort of criminal justice system and work and employment status. And uh, of course, this is true in the immigration context too, right? So some of the ways that um, that we kind of structure our economy and sort of um, facilitate, you know, the disempowerment of certain kinds of particularly low-wage workers, um, is through this background threat of the criminal law in one way or another, that maybe because they can't leave their job because it's a condition of their parole, or because they can't complain about working conditions because of their immigration status, um, they don't have the ability to contest their poverty, right? And so there's this sort of interconnection between um, forms of um, sort of, um, exploitation in the economic sense and um, these um, these legal systems of incarceration, of the carceral state, and um, you know citizenship that are often treated as very distinct.
0: And then looking historically, the role that vagrancy laws played in in disciplining poor people, rebellious workers, social misfits, more generally. Um, up until the, the Papa Cristo decision, which I think was in the late 60s maybe, I don't remember, um, but that uh, Risa Goluboff writes about in this great book, book Vagrant Nation, these were pervasive features of, of, of the American criminal justice system that were nakedly attuned to controlling political dissidents and, and poor people. And uh, though those laws were struck down Thankfully, they they have found um, taken a new form of sorts, maybe not quite as virulent in the the rise of local statutes targeting homeless people for for panhandling or sleeping in, in public.
1: Yeah, and I think in some ways these are, these things are easier to see sometimes when you look historically. I mean, there's lots of forgetting, and Risa's book is really terrific and important because I think it doesn't, people don't know much about the history of these vagrancy laws, but but I think um, equally important is to try to um, sort of find the ways in which law continues to do this and sort of reproduce um, these layered kinds of exclusion and the, the ordinances that that Effectively criminalize homelessness are, are, are a great example, um, and so too, of course, the the way that our immigration system and 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 deportation um, intersects with the labor market today. Um, you know, so there's lots of ways in which this these things that um, were historically a feature of. Um, what one of my colleagues here, Reva Siegel, calls preservation through transformation, right? It looks like we've changed our legal order and we've reformed, but in fact, many pieces of that old order are preserved within the new system. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com.
0: Hello, this is Daniel Denver, host of the show that you are listening to. The Dig has launched its spring fundraising drive, and we're aiming to hit at least 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash thedig by the end of June. We don't paywall our shows, i.e. we give them to you for free. And so we depend on your support to keep this thing running smoothly. That said, we do have cool stuff to send those of you who do donate. Contribute $10 or more a month, and I will mail you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other great left-wing authors put out by Verso and other publishers. And that's not it. I just started a weekly newsletter for everyone donating at least $5, which, amongst other things, offers ideas for future reading— From me and from my guests, please take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig that's p a t r e o n dot com slash the dig we can't do this without you so please and thank you and back to the show one other thing on this distinction that that you've touched on a few times that I want to touch on once more before we move on is is immigration law which in so many ways you know there there are both civil and criminal immigration laws but the immigration laws that people think about the most which is just un, unlawful presence which is subject to make someone subject to, to deportation is is a civil offense um, which and we typically think of civil offenses as as less Serious than criminal offenses, and thus people have uh, fewer due process rights. They don't have a a, a right to to an attorney, for example, in those proceedings. But actually, people are (laughs) in deportation proceedings are, are, are subject to what is is arguably should be considered a criminal level punishment banishment. Um, but because of uh, some late 19th century court decision that I don't remember the name of um, banishment, i.e. deportation is not considered a, a, a punishment. It's considered a like administrative remedy. And so it's this it's this powerful way that obviously we're very much still living with today that the civil criminal distinction ob- obscures the, the the state coercion taking place.
1: Right. I mean, and, and the immigration context is replete with these, you know, there's this um, spectacular legal doctrine that actually defines when you're in the country. And you'd be surprised to know that when you're in the country doesn't actually have to do with whether you're residing on American soil, right? Like there's a whole category of, in fact, you've been allowed into the country, but you're never really in the country um, because we've just sort of deemed it to be so, so that we can continue to kind of detain certain people and process them in a different way with fewer rights than would be if we admitted you were actually in the country, right? Um, so those kinds of legal fictions um, abound. And obviously, it's hugely important to sort of unmask them. I think the other piece, though, that's really important is to start to build a positive political program that would say, well, what would it mean to sort of be free and equal in this age? How ought we deal with the carceral state? How ought we order our economy? How can we reinvest in um, the provisioning of a public um public infrastructure, right? And so it's, it, hopefully, what this group is doing is both is a combination of this kind of unmasking work, which is, is important, but also construction of both um, kind of a set of values that maybe could displace things like efficiency at the center of um, kind of domains that are thought of as about the economy, um, but also practical proposals for how to rebuild um, you know, public goods and uh, public infrastructure.
0: That's a good segue into my next question, which is about one of your areas of expertise, patent law. And you recently wrote about the government's ability to use eminent domain powers to produce their own version of a patent protected drug. There are so many cases where this might be useful, given how excruciatingly high drug prices can be. Uh, and one that comes to mind for me and that I've written a little bit about in the past is is naloxone, this extremely pricey, life-saving drug. The drug itself is generic, but it's patented in the case of, of some popular delivery systems like Nar- the Narcan nasal spray. It, explain this power of eminent domain and what sort of use it could be put to.
1: You know, patents are these government given um, exclusive rights. They're you know you can think of them as a kind of monopoly. The government gives you the right to prevent other people from producing something that you claim you've invented, um, and it lasts for twenty years. And it can be very very powerful. And there's a lot of interest obviously today in understanding and interrogating monopoly. This is one of the areas where. Um, I think that um, you can sort of really see the stakes of that, right? Because when the government gives you a monopoly to sell a life-saving good like naloxone, uh, you can charge um, uh, enormous amounts, and in ways that even neoclassical economics takes issue with and says is inefficient. Um, you know, y- you get you get incredible prices, and so naloxone's expensive, but it's not you know as expensive as some of them, where you know you have now you know seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year for a drug. Um, and it, some of which are really rely on public funding, which is a whole other story. Um, but the, but the, but the, um, the piece that I wrote about government, um, eminent domain, um, takes as, um. You know, what's interesting about this is that nobody really who teaches in this area, because comes back to the unmasking thing, really knew much about this area of law. It was activists that figured it out. Um, and in particular, I learned about it from a guy named Jamie Love, who's very much um, at the center of- Oh yeah, um, I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, radical thinking about um, how to think about public goods like medicines and why we need um, to reorder how we develop them and how we distribute them and how those two things have to be thought of as connected, Right. Um, so, so it was Jamie actually that taught me long ago that we have this kind of ability of the federal government to just override patents. Um, it turns out that this law has been on the books forever. Um, You know, uh, as a patent holder, you've never been allowed to enjoin the federal government. By enjoin, in legal terms, what we mean is get a judge to say, stop it. You're not allowed to infringe my patent. So you're not allowed to buy that, um, you know, lead free bullet from anybody but me because I've got this exclusive right, right? That's normally what patents mean, but they don't mean that against the federal government. So if the federal government wants to buy the lead free bullets from somebody else who makes it cheaper, um, they get to. And all you get to do is go to court and say, well, I want reasonable compensation. Right. So you get to break the monopoly in in effect and, um, you know, just pay a licensing fee. That's a huge, huge um, deal um, because it, you know, monopoly power gives you the price to soak, you know, particularly a government, right, for as much as you possibly can. And so the one of the kind of familiar examples of eminent domain is, let's say, the government wants to build a railroad and and, um, one last person says, I don't want to sell my property. Um, Well, the government's allowed to use the power of eminent domain to say, well, we'll pay you a fair market rate, but you can't just stop us and sort of hold us up for for the entire value of this social project um, to line your own pockets, right? So this power exists for similar reasons in the drug context. It was um, formalized and then strengthened, particularly around the First World War and the Second World War, because of concerns about price gouging for all kinds of patented goods. Um, even though nobody in the legal world that, that teaches about this really knows much about it, um, you know, if you work on contracting in the defense industry, you know about it because uh, it's used all the time, particularly in the defense sector, to allow the government to just buy from the cheapest bidder and then pay royalties later, which are inevitably <laughs> quite a bit less. All of the of- greatest
0: minds a- of our generation uh, lost in the military-industrial complex.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. find um, kind of socialism at work, you know, go to the military industrial complex, because the way, for example, that things like the market are treated inside of the military industrial complex, really, really different, right? Um, So, you know, it's never been the case that, um, you know, we have allowed, you know, soldiers who invent things to take out patents and hold them against the government, like, no way, You know, this, it's, 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 so it's, in a way... Um, you know, it's the place that you get to see because of the kind of the, you know, uh, perhaps uh, tragic kind of value systems around which our nation is built, right? Where, you know, that's where we get serious about public interest and public purpose. And so, you know, here, of course, we can't allow somebody to hold us up. So it's used all the time defense. So what we said is, you should use it for drugs. So if a company is holding you up and you know, I believe that we do have to think about, you know, as I think everybody who cares about healthcare does, we do have to think about innovation. And so we ought to make sure if we're going to rely on private companies to develop drugs, which I think we should do a lot less of. Um, but if you're going to do that, then make sure that they get compensated for their R&D. And we think about the risks that they took and so forth. So make it worth their while, right, if this is the system we're living with. Um, but don't let them charge 50 billion dollars for something that they, you know, spent a couple hundred million dollars developing. Use this power um what's interesting about this power right and this is part of what, what's fun about these legal excavation projects is that in fact um you know you can go back and find that in, we have these legal powers that exist because in fact in earlier periods it's been very clear that you know this sort of story about needing to let the private market operate separately and not be regulated um was not a tenable way of thinking about organizing a society and so we have these powers which are actually quite serious it already is there in law and so it could be invoked at any time by a president who actually cared to do it. So, you know, obviously we have a president who says that he cares to do something about drug prices. Um, you know, the existence of this power, which they've never not once has this administration talked about using, um, is obviously kind of gives the lie to that because, you know, the the, the it really they don't want to do anything that disrupts monopoly power, even though the government already has the ability to do this.
0: It was remarkable at the New Hampshire event a few weeks back where- Trump called for executing drug dealers. His uh, big address on the opioid crisis. Not only he claimed he was going to do something about 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 drug prices. He's claimed he's going to do something about drug prices, but that at that event he, by name, cheered the the two two of the most profiteering naloxone producing pharma companies, uh, Adapt and SVO. It was something. Um, Connecting this eminent domain issue to the broader theoretical argument you're making, you write that this is related, quote, to the recognition that the law, that law intervenes not just to reshape, but also to make markets. Some of the most powerful interventions into markets today may therefore operate not as a regulatory overlay of the free market. And you have free market in quotes there. But instead, intervene in the legal regimes that establish markets in the first place. Explain a little bit about about this insight.
1: One of the ways that we deal with, say, concentrations of power or misuse of power is by regulation, right? So you might say, well, drug prices are too high, so we ought to regulate them. Lots of countries do that. Um, And you you have a lot of interesting models for how to do that. Um, You know, similarly, you can say... Um, you know that um, uh, uh, companies are too big, and so we're going to use antitrust law to kind of come in after the fact and break companies up, right? Um, but you also can regulate in the um, in, in the earlier instance, right? Like, why? Um, what are the structures of corporate law that allow companies to get so big, right? Or what are the structures? of tax law that allowed the kind of distribution that's evolved? Um, or what are the structures of property law that allowed um, then this price gouging to take place? And so you know, you aren't aren't limited to sort of after the fact waiting for the giant piles of cash to be built up and then taking action, after which point sometimes it's politically quite difficult to take action. Um, you can actually think about intervening in a sort of um, preliminary moment about what, it, what is the nature of the property right to begin with? Do you have the right to enjoin the government or, or do you not? Is that just not one of the rights that, as we would say in the property world, is part of the bundle of sticks that you have as a property rights holder? Um so so it's really important to recognize that you can operate in both spaces. And I think one reason is that this dodge, right, this or lawn economics dodge let's like let's make everything efficient over here and then and then later on we'll redistribute. It obviously seems a little, I think, uh, implausible to begin with, but also we have lots and lots of political science evidence and sociological evidence to now to realize that, but guess what? You know, distribution at time one tends to influence politics at time two, right? So if we only think about our ability to regulate later, um, but allow these kinds of accumulations of, and concentrations of power um, earlier, we may um, uh, take off the table certain sets of structural tools that we in fact need um, to be able to try to create a more equal system.
0: And it's also like not a question of to intervene at that early stage or not, because what approaches like law and economics obscure is that the state, to use a phrase that I used way too much as an undergrad, always already intervened in the market.
1: I use that too much as an undergrad, too. But it's it's really (laughs) useful because they did always already uh, intervene, at least the modern state, right? And so intellectual property is a great example of that. I think people have a harder time in some ways thinking of property property as not um, you know, a court, an obvious, uh, you know, an obvious institution, but intellectual property like patents are actually granted to you by the state. You go and you make an application and they give one to you or they don't. Right. Um, uh, so there isn't like a, a kind of a pre-political form of them. <laughs> so the, the, the hand of the state is very obvious there. It's one of the reasons I like to to teach it, and when I teach property law, because it lets you see that, of course, there's the hand of a state in, engaged here, and so there isn't a pre-political moment of sort of, well, first there's the market over here, and then there's, um, and then there's the state over here, and we oughtn't interfere, right? It's it's um, it, it's obviously already there.
0: I, it seems like you should teach uh, intellectual property first, and then phase two is is primitive accumulation.
1: Yeah, actually, that's kind of what I do when I teach property. <laughs> I start with things like Google Books because also kids can relate to it. You know, people can't relate to easements and, you know, I mean, they're not landowners yet, <laughs> um, but they can relate to questions of of Google Books and drug pricing.
0: Another issue that you uh, wrote about with Jed Purdy in this case um, and that uh, we've talked a lot about on this sh- show in the past is is guns. And you have this great insight that, quoting from your piece, how the Supreme Court decision in uh, District of Columbia V heller which was about the second amendment and, and the the individual right to to bear arms with relation striking down dc's dc's handgun ban if i have that right um mm-hmm. that it quote generated another version of private ordering twinned with limits on state power here private ordering enables a certain violence for some against a defined set of others the prior longstanding uh, understanding of the second amendment was, was about legitimating violence against what you call a dark and dangerous stranger. But, but it was based on a different idea of state-sanctioned militias. While this new understanding is also about uh, legitimating violence against a dark and dangerous stranger, but with this new conception of a relationship between the state and the vigilante citizen. Tell me a little bit about these two conceptions that you're writing about and the consequences of heller
1: people may not realize but the you know the quote unquote individual right to bear arms is it, it does not have a long historical pedigree actually right in legal circles that idea was considered laughable in the 70s and the 80s right it really is a project and an intellectual um uh, and political project of the nra and then the republican party and various donors to sort of to create the idea that there was an individual right to bear arms that there is one, is actually, you know, a modern one. Um, that idea, you know, didn't become law in this country until 2008. Before that, you know, lawyers agreed as a matter of kind of um, a, a kind of professional um, consensus that this right had to do with what the Second Amendment talks about, which is militias. So there's sort of a, a collective right, some people call it, or, you know, that the that the, state has a right to to create a militia, something like that. Um, but not an individual right that would disrupt gun control laws. The court never did that until 2008, right? And that's in part because of the way the amendment is written, which talks about um, a well-ordered militia um, uh, before it talks about the right to bear arms. And so so there was this one conception about, in fact, our, our collective interest in self-defense or something like that as a people, right, as a nation, um, freedom from tyranny, something of that order, right? Um, uh, and then, the, but the but the meaning of in the sort of self defense um, account that the court gives in this Heller decision is something totally different. It's got nothing to do with militias, and the idea of it is that the core of the the right to bear arms is the right to self defense in the home. Now. Um, that, that required some incredible um, gymnastics because the text of the Constitution doesn't talk about self-defense. It doesn't talk about the home, right? It talks about militias. Like ditching—yeah,
0: <laughs> like Scalia basically has to ditch the first half of the the amendment.
1: Yes, yeah, so he has to ditch the first half of the amendment. And he does that by calling it prefatory, which is a word that was invented mm-hmm. by a guy who held the NRA chair— Um, a a law professor, right? So he has to ditch the first part of the amendment. Uh, The other thing that he has to do, pragmatically speaking, because Scalia was a living constitutionalist, he really wanted to change what the Constitution means. Pragmatically speaking, he had to create a kind of gun right Um, that in some sense wasn't completely out of step with social conceptions today, right? Because constitutional legitimacy matters, and it matters to the court. And so what does he do? Well, he says, you know, of course you can have laws that prevent military-style weapons, and of course you can have laws that prevent... Possession in schools and other sensitive places. So he writes this litany, this list of where you're you're allowed to have gun control, um, and then redefines the right as this thing about self-defense because it would sound crazy today to say, well, of course you have to have arms sufficient to be able to, you know, engage in warfare against your neighbors or the state. Uh, That's not (laughs) a credible legal position, nor is it where the law is. Right. So it's a fascinating decision, and I think what we were trying to do in that piece was both. Um, kind of allow people some insight into the way that the crafting of this right as of idea of self-defense both um, required this gymnastics with respect to the text and history of the Constitution, um, but also imported into the Constitution as a matter of constitutional law, this kind of racialized and paranoid idea that, you know, you need guns to defend yourself in your home. Well, who are they thinking of? Well, it's not like, you know, it, it's not, you um, you know, the Black Panthers, um, you know, the NRA never really liked them. Um, so, you know, the the, the the image here is this sort of vulnerable, um, you know, presumptively, you know, white person, often cast as female, right, who needs to defend herself in her home. Or often, uh, you know, it's the guy, it's the man of the household who needs to protect himself in his home because the state won't protect him. Right? And, and in that way, it's also connected. And we show a little bit more of this in that piece. It's connected to attacks on the welfare state. Right. To the way that the court pivoted um, and the, the right pivoted to attack um, the, the kind of more liberal era of the Supreme Court um, to attack welfare and, and other kinds of public provisioning and cast them as also part of this, um, uh, you know, kind of soft on crime. Um, uh, movement of the kind of uh, modern progressive um, uh, ethos.
0: And so Heller's this really new thing, but uh, something that I found really interesting about, the, about uh, this piece is how there's also this continuity that you draw out between the frontier conception of the right to bear arms for self-defense and the current neoliberal one. Both are about legitimating a certain type of private violence, which is a type of of, of white violence against against a dangerous dark other,
1: right? And and that's very much I think at the core of how gun rights are defended today. Right? Is there some sense that um, that you need to be your own policeman because the state has been kind of taken over by um, and and you know we, we we we're too soft on criminals et cetera et cetera right? So you need to be your own protector and you're allowed you're allowed to and of course you can see this in the Stand Your Ground laws um, you can see this in lots of other places, right, that you're allowed to, um, uh, you know, um, to use violence against other citizens. And again, that 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 does tend to be um, um, sort of bound up with ideas about who the kind of privileged um, and uh, innocent people are and who the, the dark and dangerous people are.
0: The last thing I want to ask you about is, is how you think that the left should think about the law, especially in the light of the Trump administration and the current Supreme Court. I've personally always gravitated towards a more, I don't know if these are the technical terms for it, but a a, a realist or I guess instrumental approach to the law and the criminal justice system. And that I'm interested in it, in the law and constitution in terms of how they advance or frustrate struggles of ordinary people for freedom and and social justice. And I think conservatives, regardless of their theoretical pretexts, also have a quite instrumental outcome-oriented approach. Um, Meanwhile, I think liberals often tend to look at norms and institutions as sometimes transcendently sacred. Tell me about the different ways of looking at the law and how you see it.
1: Oh, wow. That's a deep question. (laughs) Um, So there is a long tradition of legal scholarship that seeks to show that law is political, right? And so whether it's now people in political science who sort of count up where, who appointed a judge and what their decisions look like and try to kind of put them all into some grand database and show that actually turns out it matters who appoints you. Uh, There isn't a perfect fit, but there's a correlation. Um, uh, You know, um, you know, So, so, so there's that kind of work, but there's, there's all kinds of other work of the unmasking sort that we've been talking about, right? To show that political values work their way into legal questions that themselves purport to be sometimes neutral, um, or fair to everyone, but, you know, but aren't in fact, right? You know, so, so on the one hand, I think you have to think about law as embodying values. It's not a neutral terrain, right? On the other hand, I think it's a mistake to not take seriously the part about law that does um, insist that values matter, in part because it's one of the ways that we kind of constitute ourselves as a polity. What values matter to us? You know, what is fair? What's your vision of what's fair? Right? And it isn't to be naive that the law would, in a simple way, embody that. But it is to be able to make claims then about what doesn't count as fair. Um, you know, so so I think it's it's um, it's important to not construe law as apolitical, but I also feel, and I think in this way, many of my colleagues on this blog um, feel similarly, that one of the things that we, we shouldn't do is sort of simply say, you know, it's it's critique all the way down, let's not talk about the, the way that we'd actually like to order our society, um, you know, let's not talk about what we think fairness or equality means, how we think we ought to understand um, the commitment to equal protection of the laws or the commitment to free speech. I think we need those affirmative visions. Um, we shouldn't treat them naively. And I think you know uh, you shouldn't have lawyers in the lead. I think that's another really important thing to think about as you think about how to build a progressive politics. Lawyers are not actually likely to be particularly good at prioritizing, you know, power building and organizing of the sort that we need. Um, that said, I think they're really valuable. And one of the things that we can do um, as lawyers and as legal scholars is try to um, make connections between, you know, ways that we can build power as progressives uh, or radicals and um, and 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 kinds of legal legacies or legal values that we can use to make our case.
0: Wow. Amen. Amy Kapczynski, thank you so much.
1: This has been super fun. Thank you.
0: Amy Kapczynski is a professor of law at Yale Law School and a co-convener of LPE Blog. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after asking... Is there not a necessity for deeply reflecting upon an alteration in the system that breeds these crimes instead of glorifying the hangman who executes a lot of criminals to make room only for the supply of new ones? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at Radio, and find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce the show to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And also, do find us on Patreon.com slash The Dig, and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation running even a few bucks a month is a big help.